I tell you, I'm, uh, we're preparing a series this week on Sundays, and the theme of that is going to be hope. And uh, one of the questions that you have an opportunity to answer in social media if you're following us this week is, what brings you hope? And I want to encourage you to answer that question. We're going to use some of that content on Sunday morning, and it's beautiful to see all the things that are coming in. And when I answered that question, I said, music gives me hope. Music is like a drug to me and to not only me, to humans, right? It changes my brain. It changes my heart. It changes my life. And that changed me tonight, you guys. I'm not kidding. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah. So I've got a... Okay, good. Um, So we're in a series called The Happiness Project in which we are asking the questions, what is happiness? How should Christians pursue happiness? Can we be happier than we are? What does happiness depend on? Thank you. And what are their practices that promote happiness? And last week, we kind of deconstructed some of the messages that churches sometimes present regarding happiness and briefly touched on some of the broad points from social science research regarding happiness. And we learned that happiness is kind of a subjective topic, and it's difficult to find, to define, And churches often present sometimes conflicting messages regarding the pursuit of happiness. And sometimes the concept of happiness can be mixed up with what we found out about toxic positivity and also spiritual bypassing in our faith communities. So it was a real feel-good message. (laughs) And this week, I'm afraid we have to go down the hill before we go up. That's kind of how I feel about it. You may change your mind, but... the. I would like to clarify one thing before last week before we, from last week before we move ahead. I used some of my childhood Sunday school songs to illustrate what turned out to be in my experience as I went along through my life, some seeds of what were some toxic ideas, maybe about the relationship between faith and happiness. And that's a true part of my experience. Another true part of my experience is that I loved VBS. Okay, I loved it. I don't know if you guys had VBS in your life when you were kids. Um, but, uh, you know, that was the entertainment for the summer, right? I wasn't like these kids nowadays, you know, kids nowadays with all their entertainment. I had three crummy channels, you know, a box of Barbies and a swing set. And don't, you know, I, got, I had a lot of fun with that. But, man, VBS, like snacks, craft, the craft room, it was wonderful, And I loved the program at the end, and I loved the music and the songs. And there was a wonderful sense of community there that um, provided a lot of connectedness for me in my life. And so I did meet Jesus there, and I did learn to love him. And so experiences can be more than one thing, right? They can have more than one role and have more than one meaning. And that really kind of is what the book of Ecclesiastes talks to us about, too. So this week we're looking at a very ancient Hebrew text um, that may have some things to tell us about happiness. And I don't want to get super tedious with it, but I do want to say when I present teaching that's from a book, I like you to know what it's from. I like you to know the context of it. And uh, so I'm going to present a little bit of context And some of you may be like, I know all of this. And some of you may be like, I don't know why she's telling us this. And you may be somewhere in between. And all of that is fine. But to that end, let me say, this book that we are going to hear from tonight is from what Christians call the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is a book of...
of 39 books, and in the Protestant Bible, it's 39 books. That's the Bible that probably most of us use. If you happen to come from a Catholic or Eastern Orthodox tradition, the Old Testament has 46 or sometimes more books because some other books made it into the canon. The Hebrew Bible used by modern Jews, practicing Jews, contains the same content as the Protestant Old Testament, the one we use, but that content's only divided into 24 books. So uh, lots of faith traditions use the Old Testament, and Christians do. And Ecclesiastes is in the category of poetry and wisdom, uh, which includes Job, remember Job? Psalms, we hear about those all the time. Proverbs, which we really think of as the Book of Wisdom, and the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, and then this book, Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a book that has really given interpreters fits through history because there's disagreement about the author, there's disagreement about when the book was written, and an appropriate way to interpret the message of the book. And because it has kind of a counter-narrative, as I mentioned before, to the traditional wisdom of the Old Testament. And so I want us to get a kind of a big bird's eye view of Ecclesiastes. And uh, so buckle up, because we're going to watch a short video that gives us kind of an historic context for this book, very short. Uh, buckle up, I would say, or gird up your loins as the Old Testament says sometimes, because there's lots of info here right at the beginning, but I think we can handle it. So, let's see what they have to say. Oh, I see it. I see it. It's this. So what does the teacher nope. have to say? Nope. Sorry. Spencer, I might need help. I'll stop touching it and you can do it. The book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you. It's part of the Bible's wisdom literature, and it opens with this line. The words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, in Hebrew, the word Kohelet means someone who has gathered people together. And in this case, it's to learn. So it's often translated in English as teacher. And the teacher is said to be a son or a descendant of King David. And so there are different views about who this figure might have been. Many think that it refers to King Solomon, others to maybe one of the later kings of David's line, and still others think that it's actually a later Israelite teacher who has adopted a Solomon-like persona as a teaching aid. Whichever of these views is correct, the key thing is to recognize that the teacher is a character in the book and is different than the author of the book, who remains anonymous. So we do hear the teacher's voice for most of the book, but it's actually a different voice, the author, who introduces us to the teacher in the first sentence and then at the end concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating everything the teacher just said. So the author is someone who wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say and then help us process it and form our own conclusion. How are we doing? We doing okay? All right. So one reason that I think it's important to do this is because when we read a biblical text, I think it's really important for us as people of faith in our uh, approach and interaction and relationship with the text to recognize how ancient the text is. This is a very ancient text. The difference in ideas about who wrote that text ranges over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and the earliest 
it may have been written, or not the earliest, the latest, the closest to us, it may have been written as 300 years before the birth of Christ, according to scholars. So that's 2,300 years ago. It's a long, long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? And so we have to recognize that. There's no clear reading of Scripture. We're not picking up something from somebody else that wrote it right here in our context. It's our job to contextualize it. It's our job to bring it into our time and begin to understand it. So, um, it's important also that the author presents a character, this character, the teacher. And that character kind of presents the counter-narrative of the book. And then the author at the end comes back and says, what do we think about what this guy said? Uh, And so, that'll help us in reaching some conclusions maybe about what the author is saying about what is good for people, what is important to remember, what is wise. All right, we have one more short section. Can we handle it? And this tells us a little bit about what the author may be saying or kind of the central message of the text, just a really short video. I can do it. I'm going to try it. Oh, you're going to do it? You do it. (laughs) So what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message at the beginning and right at the end, and it's hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. Now, most English Bibles translate this word hevel as meaningless, but that doesn't quite capture the heart of the idea. In Hebrew, hevel literally means vapor or smoke. And the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book as a metaphor to describe how life is, first of all, temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke. But secondly, also how life is an enigma or a paradox. Like smoke, it appears solid, but when you try and grab onto it, there's nothing there. So there's so much beauty or goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Or we all have a strong sense of justice, but all the time bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly, it's unpredictable, it's unstable, or in the teacher's words, like chasing after the wind. Hevel. Now that's kind of a downer. It is kind of a downer, but it it provides this idea, this counter-narrative. So the narrative of the Old Testament, the central narrative is God is just. And God rewards righteous people, he rewards good people, and he punishes wicked and evil people. And we see that uh, through a lot of the prophecy and a lot of the teaching in the Old Testament. And Ecclesiastes and other books, including the Psalms and other portions of the wisdom literature, come in and say, really? Because I'm looking around, and I'm seeing bad things happen to really good people, right? And I'm seeing a lot of things that don't seem to match this narrative, And you know what's interesting to me is those things live right by each other in the scripture. One, we didn't have to cancel them out. We didn't have to make them all align. They're both there. And in the tradition of, uh, the Jewish tradition of reading scripture, that's totally fine with them. That's a way, that's the way that we engage with the scripture. We talk about it. We wrestle with it. We let it work on us and we think about it. And this book definitely provides us that opportunity. Eugene Peterson, in his introduction to this book in The Message, says, Unlike the animals who seem quite content to simply be themselves, we humans are always looking for ways to be more than or other than what we find ourselves to be. This idea of looking for something that's going to make us happy, looking for a change in our circumstance. And when we talked about that, Last week, some of the social science about research kind of said that as well. 
people often think that a change of some kind, um, when, when everybody's needs are met, right? So we're not talking about people who are in poverty or in trauma or in some desperate need. That's a whole different category of conversation, and that's not the one we're having. When our needs are being met, our research, our survival needs, research kind of says if something changes, it's not necessarily going to make us a lot happier. And that's kind of what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. He says right at the beginning this very famous line, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and that's that hevel word. And you can go around and impress your friends with your native Hebrew. How are you doing? Well, hevel. It's not going, it sounds like a cuss word a little bit, maybe. Uh, it starts with this idea. And they keep saying this over and over in many different ways. It does kind of remind me of Debbie Downer. Do you guys remember Debbie Downer? <laughs> Hevel. Sounds like something she would have gone around saying. And the teacher runs through a list of things uh, that he pursued to try to find meaning. And I'm going to read this passage to you from the beginning because it really summarizes, and it's kind of beautiful poetry. What do people gain from all their labors with which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new? There's nothing new under the sun. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. And here's the kicker, and this is the thing that really gets the goat of this teacher, that really makes it bitter for him. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So the teacher has identified himself as a king in Israel. Commentators differ on how this should be interpreted. Um, in any case, to the readers of this book, that indicates this person has authority and knows some stuff, knows what he's talking about, has the opportunity to have had a lot of experiences. And so that gives this book a little bit of authority because it's pushing back against the traditional wisdom. So in the first two chapters of the book, the teacher runs through all the stuff that he tried and tested to see if there was any meaning. And it's a very interesting list. And one thing that I think is so interesting about reading a book like Ecclesiastes, even though it's so old, it's so human. I mean, how many of us have felt the way that poetry felt at some time in our life? This is a mess. Why am I doing this? Right? That's a universal human experience. And so he's tried all this stuff. He's tried wisdom itself, which is a little bit of a weird flex for a wisdom writing. He's like, I've tried wisdom. I mean, I'm writing this wisdom book, but I've tried it. Spoiler alert, not so great, you know. Uh, he tried pleasure, he said, including laughter and wine and even what he called folly or foolishness. But he says he did it while thinking about if it was good or not. And he said, yeah, that, that turned into nothing, too. He tried all kinds of great projects, building things and planting vineyards and accumulating possessions and money. And he was like, it's fine, but it's not really that great. Even built a great harem. 
So for those of you that are building a harem to pursue happiness, spoiler alert, according to Ecclesiastes, that ends up meaningless as well. Uh, so, and the reason all this is meaningless, he says, is that nothing was gained. He says this over and over. Nothing was gained. Everybody dies anyway. Uh, you can be wise or foolish, you die. You can be rich or poor, you die. You can know things or not know things, you die. Uh, and that's kind of hard to argue with, right? It seems like he has a point. And he goes one step further, and this is, we're about to be at the bottom of the hill, I promise. We're going we're gonna to make a turn here in a minute. But we kind of, I think to talk about this in a meaningful way, you kind of have to go to the bottom of the hill. You kind of have to talk about it in context of what real life is like for people, for humans. Um, he talks about an image of oppression. And I read this scripture last week, and I spared you the saddest part, but I'm not going to spare you the saddest part this time. I'm going to read the whole thing. He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than those who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And artists have said this, and poets have said this over and over and over and over again. When I read this, I thought of several songs. I thought of Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, right? And where he says the line, I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. Dust in the Wind, right, is, there has quotes right out of Ecclesiastes. We're just, and that's, that's Hevel. Dust in the Wind is Hevel. It's it just, we just come and we go. Jesus said that too, you know, we come and we go. Uh, so I feel the weight of that, and I imagine that we've all been in that place where we felt the absurdity of life in the way that the teacher does. So uh, I also thought, uh, because I sometimes have an inappropriate sense of humor, wouldn't it be a funny graphic to graph that out? Like, best way to be according to the teacher. Never been born, died, living. <laughs> And then living has several different categories, and that's what we're going to get to next week, because he's like, well, if you've got to be alive, um, some things might be better than others. So again, this guy is kind of giving me a real Eeyore moment, right? Uh, Eeyore says here, could be worse, not sure how, but it could be. I did love Eeyore, though. I love Pooh. Did you guys read Pooh? You could kind of feel the, the truth in that text all the time. Uh, and people you know, didn't like Eeyore, but he always told it like it was, for sure. So what does all this have to do with happiness, you may ask? Well, it seems to echo some of the research that we heard last week. In that your circumstances, whatever we're chasing after, sometimes it doesn't end up like we thought it was going to. Sometimes it doesn't really give us the bang for our buck that we were looking for, right? And... According to Ecclesiastes, at least it may not have lasting meaning. And there is injustice, and things don't work out the way we planned. I think it's interesting to think about this text, and, and there's, as I said, there's many ideas about when this text was written and by whom, and I don't know who wrote it and when they wrote it. But one of the theories is that this was written by a person um, in Jewish history who was living in exile, 
So in, in, there's a, this is a very brief overview of Jewish history. So in the early books of the Old Testament, we have the creation story and the early patriarchs. And then the Israelites end up in Egypt, right? Way down in Egypt land, let my people go. That part, right? And then they get delivered out of slavery. And then there's a whole bunch of time about gaining the promised land. So it's all about the promised land. And they become established in the promised land. And then they have judges and they have a monarchy, this flourishing kingdom. And then they become, uh, they, well, they're attacked several times, but the final time they get exiled to Babylon. And uh, they're just out of their land. They're out of their land, which is the heart of their relationship with God. That was the promise. This is going to be your land. And that's what was promised all through the earlier scriptures. And they're out. They're out. They're away from their temple. They're away from all of their practices of worship. They're spread out. They're not together. They're in bondage. And then one of the theories is a person is writing this book. And they're saying, What's, where's the meaning, right? Did any of this mean anything? Did any of these promises mean anything? Here I am. I'm in Babylon. I'm in exile. Did God's word mean anything? And everything has come to ruin. So I think it's interesting to hear that in context. But there is some respite. There is some respite in the text. And I actually derive a lot of meaning from this text because it's so real. Because it really um, connects to the human experience. It doesn't put something on top and say, ha, 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 you know, la, la, la. Kind of like the masks that... Uh, Philip was talking about on Sunday, no toxic positivity here. That's one thing that this book does not have. Uh, but the respite comes in three forms. And those three things are the things we're going to be talking about over the next two weeks as long as we're in this series. So the first respite is things have meaning when they're in their season. Things have meaning when they're in their season. And if you, we heard that in the song tonight, right? And it's a series of opposites in that song. So it's, it's very interesting because it's not what we think of as wisdom literature. When we think of wisdom literature, sometimes we think we're going to go and we're going to get an admonition and it's going to be a clear thing. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. And then we just do them. But it turns out wisdom may not be like that. It may be there are things that are right to do sometimes and really a bad idea to do at other times. And the wisdom literature teaches us that. And that passage says things like, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. There's a time to gather stones together and there's a time to scatter them apart. There's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. So sometimes this is the right thing in its season and sometimes this is the right thing in its season. And that's wisdom. That's the nature of wisdom. So things have meaning when they're in their season. That feels good. That feels like a respite, something we can land on. The second thing that's a respite that we're going to see coming on is since this is our lot in life, and that's really how the teacher says it, this is our lot. This is how God has given us. We try things and they don't work out and then we die. <laughs> That's kind of his message. But he says, since this is our lot, um, some things may be better than others. Maybe there's wisdom is better than folly sometimes. Maybe it's better to have two instead of one. Remember that one from last week? 
So it's better to have two, have a friend. It's better to have a friend to pick you up. So there are some things that are better than others that give us comfort. There's a beautiful refrain in this song, and it really does sound like a refrain in the language of the book that just comes back every time. And he says, There's nothing better for people to do than be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of their toil. This is the gift of God, which I think is a a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. And the last uh, respite that we find, and this comes at the end, when the author of the book comes back and gives commentary, So we've got all this thing about there's no meaning. And the author, I think, who kind of represents the central narrative of the Old Testament, does not say, don't listen to that. That's different than all the rest of the teaching. He's like, there's wisdom here. There's some wisdom in this. And then he says, and also, we love God and keep his commandments. So it's a both and turn there. It's both and, which I find wisdom in. I find wisdom. So those are the things we're going to explore in the next couple of weeks. What are this maybe some of the things that Ecclesiastes says are better than others? What does Jesus say about it? Um, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, let's have a word of prayer before we go, and then we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Creator God, help us to walk in the way of wisdom. Help us to be happy and do good, to find satisfaction in our work and enjoy your gift. Help us to love you and our neighbors well, we pray for the sake of Christ. Amen. Thank you so much. Have a great night.